Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. Hello, Lorraine Candy. I am delighted to have you on our podcast. And many people will know you already, but for those that don't, you're an award-winning journalist, an editor and best-selling author, and a podcast host. You've had three decades of writing about women's lives, and you're a mother of four, and you are still living your midlife. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm 55, <laughs> so yeah, I guess I'm still roughly in the catchment uh, zone of midlife. I hope so anyway. So on this podcast, we ask everybody the same question, which is tell me about a challenge you're facing or have had to overcome. Well, this feels quite a privilege to me because um, it's like a special one-to-one therapy session with Julia Samuel. So my current challenge, which I think is quite common um, for women of my stage of life, is uh, one of identity and what next? So for most of my life, um, as you know, I left school at 16. I came to London. I got a job on national newspapers very young. I worked really hard. Um, I managed to go quite high up at the Times. I was features editor of the whole newspaper when I was 25. Um, I edited Elle. I edited Cosmo. So I I created a career, a very driven career. Then I had four children and all of it very lucky. And I feel privileged to have been in that position. But then I had a sort of minor unraveling or a quite big unraveling in midlife. And now I have the next stage. And I just, um, I don't really know where to begin with it, because I guess it is about identity. It's always about our identity. And as you know, this midlife bit, you look back on all the other stuff and you think, well, I could have done that differently. Or maybe I don't have regrets. I just think before I adopt the next thing, which could be anything, what do I need to think about? What do I need to do? Because I could purposefully choose how I need to be now rather than, you know, as you get so caught up in this amazing life where you're just moving on and moving on. And I've been very driven to achieve. My validation has been my career and um, doing things really well and being very excellent at it. I don't really know any other way to be, so I don't really understand how to sort of 
change that bit of me that is kind of, is so woven into me. And I think a lot of women of my generation, Gen X, probably feel the same. I, I get a lot of uh, messages about burnout and stress and how we deal with stress. But I think I'd like to look at it in a more positive way of what next. It's a huge challenge. What What is next? How do I make the next bit meaningful, but probably very different? <laughs> you know, and two of my children have left home. Um, next year, another one will leave home. So all of these things are all, you know, how do I deal with the change? I, I could do it terribly wrong, perhaps, or I could do it and then look back in 20 years time and think, oh, why did I do that? So long answer to a very pertinent question. And perhaps it's not a deep and traumatically filled challenge, but it is a challenge of identity, which I think many women, you know, might be useful for many women to hear how to tackle that. There's so much that you said that's really important. And actually, I think change, even when it's a kind of one that we're all going to face, like our midlife, it, I think it does feel traumatic because it tears you away from the core of yourself as you knew yourself. And I want to get into identity because I think identity is at the heart of all change and it's the part of change that we find most difficult to navigate. I think what would be useful for me and I think our listeners would be to understand what were the foundations of your 16-year-old self that got you to be driven to be an editor at 25, to be the editor of Cosmo, to be so successful and to have that excellence. Do you know what the underpinning kind of sense of belief and value that you kind of were aiming for or did you innately have? What was, because I think you have to go back as with all therapy, you, you start with a problem that you want to solve <laughs> for the future. But most therapy, you have to very annoyingly look back and see what got you there. Well, I guess for the, the context is I grew up in a very tiny village on the edge of um, Bodmin Moor in Cornwall. Mum and dad still together and obviously I have a younger sister who's two years younger than me. So I don't think I was running away or escaping or I think I was, I think boredom perhaps drove me and a huge curiosity for people and an obsession to know what people were doing. <laughs> and I think journalism is therefore the, the best career. It puts you on the front line of getting all the stuff, all the information before everybody else does. And I think a lot of young people in small villages do want to go and live in a city at some point in their life. And I was driven to live in uh, London. Uh, my grandparents were in London. So I guess... I, th I think the drive really was probably just to go and find stuff out and not be bored, as far as I can tell looking back on it. But it's hard to – I think I'm a pretty straightforward person. It, you know, stuff just is is or isn't. <laughs> I'm quite factual in things. I don't tend to overlay emotions over things in, in many ways. When you say you're quite matter-of-fact and you don't overlay emotions, that, of course – negates 80% of our decision-making, which is informed by how we feel. So when you're relying on your cognitive self, that this is, it's this, it's yes or no, in some ways you're trying to suppress, I guess, the competitive emotions and influences because you want the simplicity. I will just do something without giving it hours of thought. I just will. I just, I'll say, well, that looks interesting. I'll I'll do that. So I suppose that's more my thought is I don't really, if it looks interesting and I think, 
I don't I have a quite a positive attitude to life in that I think everything is probably possible which I perhaps came from my parents I think any, anything is possible if you try hard put yourself in the right position and you have a certain amount of fate in the direction you're going so I guess there's that as well um I don't really know Julia I guess that's why I struggle now to find identity because I don't really understand that identity perhaps maybe many of us are looking back and thinking what what was that about how you come across, and I think what you're saying is that you had a secure, loving environment that you were brought up in. So you had secure attachment so that there isn't this need to kind of prove yourself or need for attention that you didn't get in a, in a foundational way as a child. And living in a quiet village. I mean, Chekhov used to talk about, I, I only say this because as if I know much about Chekhov, but that you would escape city life in order to have a quiet life and to have peace and really you were doing you wanted to have your curiosity was the energy that shot you out of Cornwall and into London and that that is seems to me the the sort of signifying connector between who you were then and who you are now is a avid curiosity yes it's a, a, a huge giant nosiness about everything I think I'm somebody who gets bored incredibly quickly so I think perhaps people who get bored quickly who don't spend the time to delve into things perhaps are constantly moving but I think at this stage of life there is a need not to be constantly moving and to spend more time in one thing looking and also not to sort of achieve. We are, as a generation, quite an endurance generation. We will just keep achieving, I think, as Gen X women, um, whether that's at women who stay at home with family or women who go to work, whatever. We are quite achievers. We've got this big list we're constantly doing. I know this, not off the top of my head, obviously, I've chronicled women's lives for a very long time. I've written about them and interviewed hundreds of women around this. And this achievement drive is part of the boredom thing perhaps as well but it's quite a hard switch to turn off but probably from a kind of mental health and physical health point of view it is something we do need to turn off at this stage of life that's where my curiosity leads at the moment how do you turn that off how do you step into a place where that isn't driving you I think that's a really good question and I think one of the things that you said in your book, What's Wrong With Me, is your addiction to being busy. And I, I have an addiction to being busy. And I think an achievement, and some of that I think is to do with, although I'm a baby boomer, not a Gen X, but is this idea of what am I worth and who am I for if I'm not doing something? Yes. And I think what you're talking about of what you want to discover is how to be and that being is enough. Yes, in This Too Shall Pass, I decided to do a definition of identity, which I hadn't seen anywhere before. And what I understood by identity is that when we ask ourselves the question, who am I? It's through the lens of identity that we find our answer. And the, our identity is the foundation on which we build a life. It's a series of building blocks. And some of our identities are fixed, like our ethnicity, and some are roles and identities that can change. It can be our sexuality, it can be our jobs, and those evolve and change through life. And they, our identities, the choices that we make in those roles kind of transmit and show our values and beliefs, 
But the essential quality of all of our different identities as a mother, as an editor, as a podcaster, as a woman, all the different ones that you have, is the basic need to be loved, that I am loved as I am, and to belong. And I was thinking about your need to be loved and to belong as a journalist and then being or choosing to, I don't know what happened, to get into a different role. And what it seemed to me that you're scrambling to find is a place of belonging and being loved in your new work identity. Yes, I think that's probably it. Is this the place I want to be? don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Is it the place I want to belong and be loved? Yes, that's the question we kind of have to ask. But it's such a big thing to answer um, when you have a very specific way of being in the run up to asking that question. Um, I mean, I guess you ask it in your teenage years, but then you ask it again in midlife and you've got this wealth history behind you. So how do you find a place to belong? You know, I would like, I think sometimes great change is exciting. So there is a sense of a need for something exciting and, you know, that energy to rise again. I think you have it as a teenager. One has it as a teenager because you think I could do this, I could do that. All these things are possible. You're innocent as a teenager, aren't you? Yes. And, and kind of you don't can't imagine anyone saying no to you. So it's more difficult to ask that kind of question that with that kind of innocence at this stage of life. So I guess that's the struggle in a, in a way. I wouldn't, I mean, it's where do you start with finding that sense of belonging and I am loved because to some extent we have that in our families here. We've created families in midlife. You we do. have older children who can love back in an adult way and we have partners. You know, I'm very lucky to have been married for 23 years. So in a way, <laughs> it's a bit of an odd question to ask. And I, I kind of keep thinking I'll wake up in the morning and it'll be sorted. <laughs> but this is your work identity. Yes, that's it, the work <laughs> identity. Yes. <laughs> or the mothering identity as well, because that's that's a very, in my mind, that's a much stronger part of me, I think, the mothering identity. Um, I think, you know, I, I loved having small children and that isn't obviously available to me at any point. I mean, I, I just loved it. And uh, maybe when I have grandchildren, but that, you know, is some way off. My eldest is only 20 when my kids are sort of 12 to 21. So it's, I don't have that identity. And I think that's probably more the whole in a way to fill for me than the, the work one will come, I suspect, or the, the doing one. But um, the mothering one is a hard one to replace, I think, when you've been used to sort of quite a long time of, of you know, hardcore mothering, as it were. I think that's interesting that you're talking about replacing because it doesn't feel to me like the mothering role ends. It changes. I mean, you've still got a 12-year-old, but yes, it's allowing the love that you have for your kids to change and adapt so that you can love them by stepping back and love them by letting them be who they are and love them by uh, supporting them in all of their different ways of being and still give yourself permission to, or I guess the acceptance of, of that role as being loved as a mum and the belonging as a mum. That part of it isn't, doesn't go. It just, 
changes shape, no? Yes, I think it does change shape, and that's. Um, but it's it's less defining of you, I think, because um, but actually, particularly visually, if you are a woman out with small children and buggies and all the stuff, and you are quite the society, quite everything. yes, quite instantly defines you as a mother. If you're the mum of a of teenagers or kids at university. No one really knows who you are, so maybe that's part of my thinking. I feel a bit undefined by it because it's not so around me constantly. But, you know, that is it's quite nice to not have it around. It's exhausting being a mum. It is exhausting. Um, And I think what replaces that is more the challenge in the building of a new midlife identity. It's certainly something women tell me a lot. They feel a little rejected, but I don't. But a lot of women feel a bit rejected by their teenagers and their new life off on their own. I mean, I I quite enjoy watching that and seeing that because I just think people are endlessly fascinating. And when your young people become people, it's it's really fascinating because it's them that's doing that. So I like to watch that. But I know it's a, it, for a lot of women, it's more a kind of, it's a loss. It's a living loss, isn't it, as we've talked about before, Julia? Yeah, I'm glad that you're using my term, living loss. Do you, I guess for people listening, shall we go to your kind of breakdown, as it were, that yes. was where you <laughs> My <surprise> lost <laughs> yourself, your surprise unravelling, which you can laugh at now, but at the time terrible. was shaming and frightening and, and terrible. Yes, yeah, so I um, ha- was editing L. I had uh, you know had my last child when I was forty three. So around the age of forty seven, I entered a sort of very bleak mentally very bleak place which was a huge surprise to me because I'd always been I felt mentally quite robust I didn't there's no depression in the family there's no as far as we know there's no mental health issues in the family and I think I had depression which just came completely out of the blue it was really shocking it was a kind of long creeping sadness what's the point of it all and I really understand and I hadn't understood it I describe it as a sort of, you know, when you drop a piece of ink in water and it spreads and it's really dark, it felt like every day was that. And I was wading through treacle, dragging stones behind me. I was having panic attacks on my way to work, which had never happened to me. You know, the floor would start to move and I'd feel like I was going to faint. I was nauseous all the time. And well, initially I thought I had a brain tumor. I thought there was some kind of quite significant physical issue that was causing, um, well, there was, I mean, I was in perimenopause and you know when I was prescribed hormone replacement therapy almost every symptom <laughs> disappeared so um I I that I was lucky it worked um that worked for me but I wasn't sleeping I was waking up with what I've since learned is a is actually quite a recognized um thing it's called it's called it hag riding I was having horrific night terrors where I could fe- physically feel people in the room with me I I was awake in my bedroom with all sorts of horrendous, nasty things happening as if I was there, which is a kind of that state between awake and asleep when your subconscious kicks in. Yeah. And these were night terrors, really awful night terrors. And all of it just was a, was a kind of gradual, you know, what was what's the point of it, I guess I, I would say. We've interviewed a lot of women on our podcast. Despair. Gone through very simply. I think worse than despair, actually. I, I just sort of... Almost, you know, and I we've had 
grief in the family. So I understood the terrible sadness of that, but it was more, it was so dark, <laughs> so awful. Gosh. And I think it's very hard for people who haven't been through d- depression to work out what's what's going on. I couldn't work out why. I couldn't see the point of anything um, until I started to do the research as a journalist and obviously start looking into this stage of life. So, yes, it was a really big unraveling. And it wasn't till I discovered the kind of huge myths around uh, HRT and all of that that I, I was on back on the right path. But it takes a while to stabilize yourself after that because it came out of the blue. It was a complete shock. And I I think that's the message I hear a lot from women, but it's taken a while, I would say about five years to sort out the next step because at the point I was sorting it out, I was made redundant, my eldest left home and I was homeschooling a 12-year-old in a pandemic. So all of these things happened pretty simultaneously, which I think is probably quite a big shock to the system. And it's been four years since then that I've gradually come back onto a much more stable, even keel, hence the need to sort of sort out the what next of everything. What I'm kind of very moved by, and also I think will be recognised by many people listening, is this sort of tsunami of losing who you knew yourself to be, that you couldn't reliably be that on person that wakes up and just gets going. Well, none of the skills I had were relevant. I was writing these enormous to-do lists and getting up at 5am and and sticking them on the walls. It was like that scene in Beautiful Mind. I was just taking post-its off saying, I have done this, I have done that, I have done that. We've sorted the kids' PE kit out. We've done all of which had been such a smooth machine up until, you know, that point and I write in the book I had got in the car at one point and I didn't know which side of the road I was supposed to drive on and that was really perplexing for someone who'd been so capable I felt up until that point and it, it does give you a sense of shame which I think is really unfair for women in mid you know I was shameful about my inability to deal with anything. I remember one of my, I had a really lovely deputy on Elle magazine and I remember going into the coat cupboard and just shutting the door and Lottie came in and said, what are you doing in the coat cupboard? I said, I've just, I've forgotten what meeting I'm supposed to be in. I'm terribly sad. I'm worried about dying. And she said, okay, well, well, let's come out the cupboard and go for a walk. And I think for a woman who's been so capable in, you know, and won all those awards and, you know, and I've covered some really big stories in my life. So I've been in situations of extreme stress and suddenly I couldn't deal with you know if if a sock couldn't find if I couldn't find the other sock for school for one of the kids I would be in tears for about an hour so it's the shame I think that is the really big problem um, as part of that because it does shake your identity if you don't know who you are anymore. And shame is so corrosive and kind of unrecognized, isn't it? And and I think what's very kind of powerful in what you're saying is that having been so competent and kind of reliably get going and get things done and be award-winning and be successful, just the basics of life escape to you. And this terror, it sounds like, which is where the shame comes from, of I can't deal with the packed lunch for my kids. I'm not who I was. But that you, it sounds like the shame is also in silence, that you couldn't say it, you hid in a, in a cupboard because you sort of felt, what was it? I felt everything would collapse kind of around it. So mostly I felt I was worried about 
I, it feels illogical, but uh, the safety of the children. I thought, well, if I can't get them to school, what if I forget to remind them to look before they cross the road? What if we can't get hold of them or I forget their phone number? It was that, I think, and also the sense that at work, if I wasn't getting it right, then um, I think when you're in charge of any team, and I'm not on the front line of the NHS, and I'm absolutely aware of what, what my job is in the context of, of society. But if I didn't get it right, then we wouldn't sell as many magazines, people's jobs would be at risk. It was a for the first time in my life, I was catastrophizing, which was not part of my personality because as I say I'd been a journalist so I'd gone you know I'd covered a a drug raid in New York I'd been in the high court for women being sentenced to life imprisonment for murdering their husbands and covered all of the history of all those cases I'd been in you know I'd covered um, Hillsborough so I'd been in places where there had been lots of stress and I wouldn't catastrophize. I would, you know, be quite logical about everything. And then suddenly in a place where I was catastrophizing and really illogical about things. And I think that's partly where the night terrors come from, because they say that night terrors are your brain kicks in and tells you your worst fear. It sort of keeps bringing it to life. So you practice <laughs> dealing with it. So I think that's quite a difficult place to, to be the catastrophizing. I do hear it from a lot, a lot of women in, in this age. They do think if this happens, this happens, this happens. And that's just a terrible spiral, isn't it? It wasn't imposter syndrome. I didn't feel a fraud or I was confused by the logic of what was happening. And it feels like the, the spiral is fear. I mean, you can really have a total catastrophe from naught to 50 in 10 seconds in your head, can't you, where you've seen everything going wrong. And then that influences how you feel about yourself. It influences what you're going to do next, how you're going to be when you do it next. And then that it's this awful kind of neural network of fear that is self-confirming and self-reinforcing. And then with that comes the sense of shame, like, <gasps> And there's something wrong with me. Yes, and I think it's not a nice feeling shame. That's the kind of, the, you know, and I hadn't really ever felt it before. I've got... Um, it's I'm excruciating. quite robust. I'm you not are? really worried what people think about me. I don't... I think possibly, you know, quite a strong upbringing. I don't worry how I, whether I'm judged. You can't expect everyone to like you. That's statistically impossible. I've been a boss. I've been in lots of situations. I've traveled the world. I'm not concerned what people think of me. So to suddenly feel shame, it was my own shame, I think, perhaps, that was the more the concern. Why was I ashamed of myself? That didn't feel fair. It didn't feel logical. And it felt very sad, I guess, in, in a way. It didn't. I wasn't worried what other people were thinking of this. I was thinking, this is unusual. I don't understand it. And that's really scary, isn't it? That the mm. you that you could rely on became contaminated by the sense of shame. And so what did you do? I mean, I know that you took... you used your journalistic skills and your curiosity and kind of researched and found out and got HRT. Did you get therapy? Because it's not just a physical thing. The mind and the body is so interconnected. And, it, and as you're saying, there's the physical uh, symptoms that you could deal with, but actually the life transition takes much longer than the external events. 
Um, I did, yes, which I write about in the book. So I took mm. uh, a moment when I realised um, that once I'd sorted out the physical uh, symptoms, that then I would obviously clearly the you know the body tells the story of the mind. That's always something I've believed in. We've done so much research in the area, and so I I went to see someone that uh, that was recommended to me. <laughs> I said I I want to come for few sessions to work out what next and to work out where I am I mean and I know that obviously clearly I probably have to spend a bit more time on it that uh, uh, she says raising her eyebrows like <laughs> it it was very very helpful <laughs> well I just think that therapy is incredibly helpful I, I would highly recommend it if people can afford it um but what I wanted to do was sort it out myself <laughs> And I felt like I had a very specific issue related to my age and stage of life and personality and background, and that I could look at it in a logical way and we could move uh, forward to help with some of the feelings and that I would go back if I felt I needed more. And I didn't feel I needed more. I felt like I'd resolved any things that, you know, the issues. And what I mostly learned, Julia, was to slow down. That's I mean, that was the, the biggest learning of the lot was to just really slow down and make a few lifestyle changes to be able to deal with it just being okay. It didn't have to be the absolute best every time. <laughs> and also to work out that I just say, I do a lot of yes, say a lot of yes to things, which I don't really want to do, but I say it because I think, oh, well, it might be interesting. Um, I'm curious about it. I'll go and have a look at it. And actually, I don't have to do that. I can just say no and be at home and watch telly or sit with the kids. I had always had to be distracted by doing something at the, the time, you know, and I've done some mad, you know, mad things. I've done swims and runs and I, I learned, I'm not brilliant at it yet, but I'm better at saying, actually, no, that will be too much for me to do. Um, I will get tired and stressed about it. So I, began to take Fridays off in my new working world. I was lucky enough to be able to financially afford that and spend time, you know, instead of getting up super early to do the swimming that I like to do, because I'm a massive fan of cold water swimming, the cold water really changed things for me. So I, I now go at a normal time on a Friday and I go with a friend and I have a morning to myself. So I'm very privileged to be able to do that. I understand that. But I also put in moments in very early in the morning when I just had time on my own and I wasn't up early to do something <laughs> I was up early to just be, be with yourself so I learned a bit about just being and, and trying to weave that into my day I'm not saying I'm perfect at it but um I I'm I'm better at putting rest in between things so I just started to change you know it's very personal to me and I'm, I'm sure not everyone has that flexibility but I started to change it so that my brain could deal with stress because I don't think I think when you push the top of the lid down on stress, it's going to come out somewhere. <laughs> you know, the body will tell you when you are under extreme stress, you'll lose sleep or you'll get an allergy or you'll react in some way. So I started to notice, link the two and stop doing too much, basically. I mean, that sounds incredibly insightful that because busyness is an anaesthetic and in change, the thing that we in need to allow space for is the flow of our emotions to come through our system. Emotions are transmitters of information to tell us something is up. So that's the sort of hag dreams that you're in a moment of big change. 
and that by slowing down, you allow your emotional system, your autonomic nervous system to regulate because you create space to have thoughts, have feelings, let them to come through you, do things like cold water swimming, which is, you know, very well evidence of Wim Hof and all of that about down-regulating our system so that you're not in a permanent heightened state, but you have homeostasis. So you go up in response to a demand. And by giving yourself space between meetings, giving yourself Fridays, you then down-regulate the parasympathetic and prepare yourself to go up again. So then you feel like your mind and your body are attuned with each other and with your life. And what it sounded like when you were incredibly stressed is that there's this awful kind of hot feeling of that it's your life's running away with you and you can't think, cognate it or move. And it's it's sort of way beyond you on your and that's when you get panic attacks. But by slowing down gives you the emotional bandwidth to manage both the big changes and the decisions and how you are going forward. Yes, I think that's true. You you just you you have a regulating skills that perhaps I didn't have before because I had a default setting of just being able to deal with it stuff that just kicked in. I think one of the interesting things so when I left uh, Sunday Times Style, so I was editor-in-chief, so whenever you pick up the phone when you're a boss of anything, you I, I am so-and-so from so-and-so. Um, I thought, and I think a lot of possibly colleagues and friends thought, I thought I would miss the status. I thought it was really important to me to be powerful. That was your kind of label on your forehead that, that gave you entry. Exactly. She has no education, but she is able to get into lots of amazing places that more normal, whatever you want to call it, people might not get. She had exclusive access. You know, I've traveled the world. I've met loads of celebrities and politicians. I've been to big things at number 10 and I've done all this really interesting stuff. And I thought the status was quite uh, a part of what I was. I was so relieved <laughs> to not have to be that person. It was the weirdest feeling. I th- That's so interesting. Yeah, I really thought, because I'd read a lot about this, because I thought, oh, gosh, this is going to be a whole I'll fall down and it'll, I'll get depressed and I, I'll lose my self-esteem. And I had a really weirdly opposite reaction. I don't know why. I just thought, thank God I don't have to wear that cloak anymore. But again, once you s- suggest that to your mind, you think, well, then who am I? Because <laughs> I thought that was really important to me. <laughs> You know, I thought it would be annoying for me to have to ring up and explain who I was. But I actually felt that it was a new start. So it was a new chance to create something different. And that's the bit I struggle with now. I think I don't really want to be in charge of anything or an editor of anything or the important person in the room. And I realized also how much pressure that puts on to somebody. So to always have to be in the place where you sit down and then you have to get up and make the speech or to always be the person giving the presentation and to remember everyone's name and to make everyone feel important. I mean, you've got to remember I worked in fashion as well for a long time. So that is a very status orientated industry um, for good and bad. But that losing that status was not a huge loss. And I thought it would be one of my big losses and it wasn't. And that was confusing to me as well. You might say yes to being a very important thing again, when that might not necessarily be the right decision. Where I kind of hear the place you're in is this fertile void. So that the fertility is there's a lot that's bubbling up in you. 
that is informed by your experience and confidence and success in the past. So that, and there's also your innate curiosity that's bubbling up in you that is fertile and looking and learning and is now an author and a podcaster and you've had your midlife um, event, that two-day event that was sold out. And there is this space, this void that is to do with parenting, but is also to do with working, that you don't quite know where to aim this energy and knowledge and wisdom. Yes. And what I'm wondering is, some of it is the mindset, isn't it? Is that when you had jobs like Editor of Style or L or Cosmo, that was a fixed heading. And maybe in this next chapter of your life, you're going to have multiple ways of being and roles that don't have a kind of label on top of the tin. Yes, but it feels a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because I'm also a bit showy-offy. So <laughs> so that bit of me, what? how do I satisfy that? Sort of, well, I, it's, I think that's more the need to belong, isn't it? That's the need. I mean, I like an audience and a lot of people around me all the time, or I am used to an audience and a lot of people around me all the time. I guess that's more that. So, yes, so that's the conundrum. You said very, very quickly, as you do over things that normally are emotionally laden, <laughs> um, that... <laughs> You like attention and you like being surrounded by lots of people and that maybe you just have to get over it kind of thing. What do you, if you look a little bit deeper into that, what is it in you that that likes attention, that likes being with lots of people? Well, like, I think laughter is really important in life. I think it's really underestimated. People so do just I. don't see it as a sort of... Yeah, fun and laughter. It's a prescription, you know, the, the, the joy of laughter is really really important physically and mentally for me so I think you you only generally get that when there's lots of people around and you can be funny and but then again I guess that's the sort of personality trait of uh, trying to be funny as a personality trait of mine but yes I suppose I, d I don't know really <laughs> I think you one always wants to be loved as you say that's the key isn't it that's the sort of um well that's why probably why I had four children I mean <laughs> probably not a coincidence is it I'm not answering your question I think maybe I've subconsciously skillfully sideswiped it I don't know <laughs> am I answering your question <laughs> I think you're recognizing that it's about connection and being loved and on the one hand recognizing and giving yourself the information that you are really loved in your family, by your husband, by close friends, by Trish, who you work with, that you have a lot of love. But there's something about being part of uh, the belonging, which is part of a team where you have a sense of we're all in this together and we're going forward together, that, that, it, that you're doing something that's bigger than you. And I think that is what you're kind of grieving a sense of emptiness for. You're, that's a super clever point, yes. That's entirely true. I think that's the thing I would suggest most people, including myself, miss when they step out of something to do lots of things, is that sense of team and achieving something together and you know, making everyone feel great that they are part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that's the other thing, the bigger than themselves, bigger than oneself element is the bit I haven't quite fulfilled yet. 
uh, I feel in in midlife. I feel incredibly self indulgent just talking about myself. So weird for yeah. a journalist to do that, but this it is a therapy podcast. So yeah, so that sense of of achieving something bigger than oneself or being part connected to something bigger than oneself is the bit I'm missing a little bit in a way although I do do lots of um things with ch- charities for example that help teenagers or younger people and I always feel shout you work, work with shout as a yeah, volunteer and, um, and you're an activist for midlifers and their world and menopause yeah and we hope our podcast which we really only set up because we just thought we cannot in all with our conscience not tell every other woman about this because that you know they followed us through our careers in in magazines and to not give that community what it needs would be really unfair of us to do it because we've have the privilege to be able to do that it's validation isn't it i guess as well and being connected to something that validates you in in that bigger than oneself way which is you know it is probably what most people want to do in in midlife i think or as they get older it's it's the thing that makes you the lights up those bits of the brain that make it feel healthy again, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it feels like part of it is recognising that you can have that same sense of belonging and purpose and doing something that's bigger than you in a different format that requires a slightly different mindset. It's sort of letting yourself know, it seems to me, that what you're doing is bigger than yourself. Because, uh, I mean, for me, that it links to wanting to a big audience is in the sense that the part of you that fires up is when you feel that you're connecting to, say, all the women readers in the previous 30 years, but in, who are now part of read your book or listen to your podcast now, that you are speaking for them and to them in a way that helps them. But as a newspaper journalist, I guess that there was more, it was clearer than it is now. I think so. I think it's clearer. I mean, it's now, it's much more personal though, because, you know, I have spoken to women who listen to our podcast or were on our private Facebook group who got the information they needed, who were thinking of taking their lives. They'd been through such horror with perimenopause, such awfulness, and had so many dreadful treatments and been in a kind of zombie-like state on antidepressants that weren't right for them. And every time you have a message like that, or you have a woman who, a woman last week who said, I was going to leave my job, I just couldn't, I was going to leave my husband and my job because I thought I was going mad but I listen to your podcast so that we get a personal validation and and we know we're being helpful because women cross the road. I was on holiday, a woman ran across the road to come up to tell me how helpful it had been to her and her family and parenting her teenagers. So this is a personal thing when we get the thanks. Whereas in a newspaper or anyone who works in a big corporate environment, you, you are together as a team and you're very physically together as a team. Whereas this is more on my own, which is obviously what is unsettling, I guess, when people move out and do things. And I speak to lots of women who set up businesses. They've got, it's all, you know, this is a business for me and Trish. This is all down to us. We made a very big decision, Mm. actually, not to grow. I know that sounds like the maddest (laughs) thing. We decided, what do we want? Do we want to be a big, successful business that has a website and does video and does all these things and is on YouTube, all of that? Or if we can work it out financially, could we have a business that means we 
are happier in our day-to-day lives and not under enormous stress because we've both been under huge stress but it was a real breakthrough for me to not be striving for something that was going to be the number one this and and you know have huge amount of stuff behind it (laughs) whereas I could just make it a thing I actually enjoyed doing which this achievement mindset had to step back a little bit. I mean, we're very specific and we believe we're doing things really authentically and with great fact-checking and all of that, but we don't feel like we need to achieve in in the massive way that we did before. That's been helpful. I would challenge that last sentence. So in that, for me, it feels like by being the most personal, you have actually touched thousands of people's lives and probably not aware of the ripple effect of your message that has affected people, some who haven't come across the street to kind of hug you and say thank you. And that part of your challenge is recognising that you are achieving exactly what you've always achieved all your life, but it's just more invisible. Yeah, it's not a visual, uh, there's no visual. It's the same with the family, isn't it? There's no visual evidence of my mothering because they're too big. (laughs) There's no visual evidence of my... Well, there is. Well, there is, yeah. Yeah. What's going on in your head right now, me having said that? You are right. So it's a different way of me in my logical mindset thinking, well, has it worked or hasn't it worked? So, you know, I can't see all the women, but I know they're there because we always know that when one person writes a letter to a newspaper, thousands of people are thinking that just one of them is inclined to write. So someone saying to, to me or Trish, without you, then my life would be immeasurably much worse than it is. Then that's an amazing thing. Yes. I think it's just that odd stage of life, isn't it? That, you know, maybe certainly when I interviewed women in their 60s for the book, they had they were past this little bit of working out the fertile void of what of what next and you know there's no rules in this bit and I've been so used to rules and a very specific way of being and a a very clear path ahead and there's just nothing and that's a exciting but b really discombobulating it has made me feel quite able to say what I like and don't like which is refreshing I think a lot of women will say that as well you know I can say I don't want to do things and I'm not wanting to take part in things for no other reason than I just don't want to do it, which has been helpful at this stage. And that just clears a bit of space to think about the what next element of everything. I mean, it feels to me like you're in your what next and you keep thinking there's something else <laughs> that's coming up. But it feels to me like you've, you've written two best-selling books. You have a very successful podcast. For fuck's sake. What, what, what else is that? Well, I was thinking I might go and live abroad and teach or something like that. I mean, what next in a kind of, you know, what's the new thing? Maybe I'll become an artist. I don't want to not make the most of an opportunity given the limited time that there is. Now I'm more aware of the limited time than I was before. So I feel like there might be, I don't want to miss any kind of amazing thing, I suppose is a part of what I'm saying. I think what you're saying is that now that you are in this new phase of life, you have more freedom of choice. And with that freedom of choice, people often think choice is a wonderful thing, but actually choice is difficult because saying yes to one thing always means no to something else. And not making a choice can lead you to an existential crisis or feeling that you have all these possibilities can also be frightening. Whereas before it was very fixed and rigid. You know, you were there, you had your job, 
you know, you got your paycheck. And now you have all these possibilities. And that feels quite discombobulating in the sense like, oh, maybe I'm missing out on my version of being an artist. Um, and I think often in change, we don't recognize that that possibility is both exciting, but also frightening. That is true. Entirely. Yeah. Frightening and confusing as well, I think. Confusing, that's a better word. Yeah. I've just got this little itch to scratch, which hasn't just, has just not come to me yet. And it might pop up when I'm swimming in a cold lake or in the sea or somewhere. Just a thing, a different thing. There might be a path to a different thing. That's the bit I'm still struggling with. And I think that's a really important part of the fertile void. So along with what you're already doing, it's acknowledging there's the possibility of something unknown that you can kind of feel already the kind of itch, but it hasn't expressed itself yet. And actually by allowing space and time and your Fridays and your swim, you give it the possibility to emerge, whereas busyness would stop it emerging. And so recognizing that you have an itch to scratch, letting yourself know that kind of gives your mind a place it will then go on this process of discovery. And without having to overthink it, it will it will pop up probably one day, which I think is really interesting. It's exciting. It is exciting. Yeah, I think so. Something new. It's going to come to me. I can't force it, so which is yeah. an alien feeling for me anyway. I think... <laughs> I'm not in charge. <laughs> you can't kind of set your head at it. You have to let it take its time and just state yeah. in this fertile void until it emerges. Well, good luck with it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. It was a really interesting conversation from my perspective. The thing that I was really aware of when I was kind of listening to it again and on podcasts, it's hard to know what something's going to sound like. You sort of guess what is it's good or bad, but actually you never know until you hear it, was that my tone of voice was not my therapeutic tone. It was kind of, let's get going, quite dogmatic, and not meeting her where she was at and not opening and not empathic. And I find that really hard hearing it. And I don't know if people listening to the podcast will hear that or whether you heard it. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. And I would say that it's quite interesting because one of the things that I was thinking about listening to it was she did talk quite a lot about shame. And it sounds like it felt you felt a bit like shamey um, in yourself listening to it. Um, and if anyone hasn't listened to the Brene Brown um, TED Talk on shame, I would really recommend it. It's definitely 20 minutes worth listening to. And what she sort of talks about in regard to shame is how it grows in silence, secrecy, and judgment. 
and that she talks about it as like the swamp land of the soul. That's definitely how I feel about things that I feel ashamed of. Like it's sort of maggoty and disgusting. And I think the way to sort of combat shame is doing exactly what you did, mum, which was sort of talk about the things that you feel really icky about and kind of bringing them out into the light, I think, makes them smaller. And what Brene Brown says is that the antidote um, to shame is empathy. So the more empathy I think you can have for yourself and for others, the smaller that shame gets. She also talks about the difference between shame and guilt, which is really interesting. Also sort of highlights, doesn't it, why therapy therefore can be such an effective response to shame because it's a place where you can safely air with your feelings and darkest maggoty places without judgment and receive empathy. Exactly. You know, it's, a, it's a kind of it's designed as an antidote for that. Well, she also talks about how there's a very strong correlation between people who feel a lot of shame and depression and addiction and eating disorders because shame kind of equals I am bad, whereas guilt is about behavior. So guilt is I have done something bad and I can be held accountable for it and talk about it and then kind of feel better. Um, and so guilt actually is associated with the opposite of those things. And that reminds me of, of me and mum, do you remember we went to the Christina Neff talk on self-compassion and she starts off with that. Um, most people think of self-compassion often as self-indulgence and a kind of way of escaping responsibility or taking responsibility for something. When actually in research, what we know is that self-compassion increases the ability to take responsibility of something because it doesn't tip into shame where you have to hide it and pretend you didn't do it and deny and distort the experience to manage that. Um, so I think those are sort of key antidotes out there for actually if we want to, to be able to behave differently in the world, to actually the empathy and self-compassion are really powerful tools. I actually genuinely thought you were going to go, yeah, mum, why were you like that? Which is why I came straight out of the the, the bat saying, I know. like The best defence is the offence. <laughs> I really empathise with that feeling of shame because when I was training, I cried every single time I had to play a tape out loud to my supervisor and it felt absolutely yeah. unbearable. So when you hear yourself, it is a Petri dish of inspection where you can very easily feel... What is very loud to you will not be loud to us, isn't it? Yes. I really remember during my training and listening to myself. First, I remember two things. Firstly, I say I said, wow, like all the time. And also, sometimes I just sounded like a child myself. Like, I was like, what is wrong <laughs> with my voice? So for people listening, for training, you have to record yourself in a session working with a client. And then you take that to your supervisor and for... For us, and I think Emily too, Sophie and I trained in the same place, you have to use a piece of tape for your exam. And I was the same, Sophie. My supervisor was this wonderful woman called Penny Daintree, who I will love forever. And I would go through like microsecond through my recording to try and find the good bit. And then, of course, I'd choose the bit that actually <laughs> needed kind of proper supervision because I'd completely missed what I'd missed. Well, identity, it's interesting that you say, I mean, midlife, because obviously she's talking about her midlife identity. But what I was really thinking about, and I loved what you said about identity, mum, and, and obviously you did a lot of research into for your book. But I also was thinking about how our most primal identity is really formed 
from the very beginning, from when we're born. And I think we form our initial identity from how our primary caregivers respond to us. So if you think of a little baby who does a little smile and then the mum or the dad or whoever's looking after it smiles back and then the baby gets more smiley and those interactions repeated over time, the baby is learning, oh, like I'm delightful. Other people delight in me. Or when I'm sad or I'm uncomfortable, people around me are trying to work out what's wrong for me. And so I'm sort of learning that I my feelings are valid, that I am of worth. And I think those core parts of identity are formed incredibly young. So if those things don't happen, then sometimes the inverse happens. Like I'm not, my feelings aren't valid. I'm not good. I'm not worthy. Um, and I think that sort of forms one of the foundations of people's identity. I was thinking about menopause and and I am I've just been doing a short training on menopause, mental health and diet, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> um, Laura Clark, look her up. She's great. Um, if it's, uh, And I imagine people, you know, listening to Lorraine Candy, if, if they already know her midlife stuff, will know a lot more about menopause than I did before I started the training. But uh, there are these big transitionary, particularly for women, transitionary moments, aren't there, in life. There's obviously birth, there's early years for everybody, and then there's adolescence, and then if you have children, there's becoming a mother, and then there's menopause. In terms of big biological, physiological shifts that then shift your mental state, or there's this kind of back and forth between your biology, your physical change, and your mental state, how interconnected they are. And... um I think it's really helpful having that conversation of how big a deal, and I know it's a big conversation these days, menopause, but it's. I think it's useful having stories like Lorraine where someone who felt so together and capable in the world can be so totally thrown. And it is de-shame that experience for people who get so knocked by that and don't have, you know, learning about, for example, I didn't know that often women at that time can be put on antidepressants because they present in GPs with symptoms of depression. And if it doesn't get caught as a perimenopausal symptom, actually estrogen is a far better treatment for that than antidepressant at that time, because that's actually the cause of so much of the mood factors in that time. So I just thought it was really helpful in sort of highlighting how challenged we can be by when we stop being able to do with by what we used to be able to do. Because when you go through menopause, as I now understand it, you no. Know, your whole metabolic rate changes, therefore your energy levels change, therefore what you can actually do in a day and feel well changes, your body shape changes. There's not very much you can do that about that often. Um, and these all kind of disrupt, don't they, the stories of who we are and how we value ourselves. So if you value yourself very highly on productivity or you value yourself very highly on a particular body shape, those things change and they are really disorienting in an emotional way that can take a long, much longer window to recover from than just taking HRT that might settle the symptoms initially. Right. And it also made me think about, I guess, the sort of precariousness of our sense of identity that, you know, it sounded so terrifying. Her experience sounded so terrifying of you know people in her room or uh, like that sort of, you know, mental health, obviously so interconnected with what's going on in your body. But also sort of mental health is not just about feeling happy and like life is worth living. It's also about our own internal safety and our safety in our own reality around us. And I think when 
she had this unraveling, which is just such an evocative word to use. It was like her whole reality was taken away. Like what, what's even real or not real and how frightening that must be. And the hag riding, that's a powerful kind of witch. Yes, oh my ride. God. Yeah, that was quite a term, wasn't it? I like that. I mean, it's scary, but it's meant to be scary. It's like, it sounds like it's out of sort of Grimm's fairy tales. It also made me think it's a really different phase, isn't it? But it reminded me that sort of, I was interested in that kind of bit of existential kind of question that came more towards the end about when you have so much choice and so much possibility that how paralyzing that can be. And, and the fear of getting it wrong, that a choice means not those other choices, like you said. And that reminded me actually of the phase after university, although it's such a different phase, how actually hard that we can kind of paint this story of the early 20s, just like, oh, what an amazing time when you have all this choice and possibility. And actually often in my memory and of memory of my friends around, it's a really overwhelming time for that, for that same reason of like, who am I being very related to what do I do and how I identify myself and the fear that you could really get it wrong. Yes, I think particularly if you're somebody who is prone to catastrophizing. I mean, I see quite a few mm. young people who, even before university, sort of feel like, oh, if I do the wrong thing at university, um, or if I drop out of university, then I am never going to get a job, and then I'm never going to make any money, and then I'm going to be homeless, and then, you know, it's like this sort of like... <laughs> Don't want to thought process, which I think we all do, particularly intensify at moments, I guess, of, you know, roads, which roads to take. So I think as a, a final thought is how the, the kind of different chapters in our life and how our kind of internal world needs to find a kind of level of attunement with our external world. And so for midlife, I was interested with Lorraine, and I think, you know, in a more generalized way, there is this idea that there's, well, there's the reality that there's less ahead than behind. But the image, I think, for most people is that the, the you've had your best life once you get to your mid-50s. I mean, the way Lorraine described it, and I wonder if our listeners feel the same, is that if you haven't made it by your mid-50s, then you're kind of done and it's about finding enough good things, but nothing really ambitious or to strive for or to kind of fight for. And certainly in my experience, that isn't true. I think your experience was that actually things got much more sort of, you've always had like a fulfilling big career, but you did have a, a sort of career growth in different directions in your like 60s. I'd also just like as a last quote that just came to mind about, you know, this last chapter and time running out. And it reminds me of a quote from a man called Bayo Komolafe, who's a, writes actually about the ecological crisis. He says, the times are urgent, so let's slow down. Mm. And I just really always love that quote. And she talked about slowing down as one of her biggest lessons. And actually, I think when it's time and running out, then let's slow down, not speed up. That's really great. Great. That's a lovely place to end. So thank you very much, Lorraine Candy, for a wonderful conversation and Sophan M. And for those of you that think this might be useful for others or others would enjoy, do please subscribe or share it with others. We also have a newsletter every week that you can get on Substack. Until next week.